Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay. We, we really didn't say much at all, actually, about James the Less, because we know virtually nothing about him unless you want to, as some have done, as St. Jerome did, for example, as Father Saunders talked about in his, in his article, conflating James the Less and James the Righteous. Okay, that there's not really three Jameses, but two Jameses. And uh, certainly that is one strain of the tradition. And there is, of course, the other strain of the tradition, which is that there are three Jameses. And as I've said before, it seems that the most ancient tradition is that there were three Jameses and that uh, some of these men were sons of Joseph and that he was an older man. I really don't want to get too far into that and we'll leave it at that. James the Less then, we know virtually nothing about except that he was the son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus, of course, I mentioned last time. Another name for Alphaeus is? Cleopas. And Cleopas was? Cleopas was the husband of? Mary, who was the, the right, cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Right? So there's these interrelations. Also, there is a tradition that historian Hegesippus, the 2nd century church historian, 3rd century church historian, right in the, in the 200s, uh, said that Cleopas was the brother of St. Joseph. Cleopas also shows up on the road to Emmaus. Okay, so this was the father of James the Less. It is generally believed that he remained in Jerusalem until his cousin, James the Righteous, reposed in the Lord, was actually martyred. Okay, the, 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 bishop of Jeru the first bishop of Jerusalem martyred. And then he left and was martyred eventually in Egypt. Okay, otherwise there's not much that we can say about him. His brother, of course, was Matthew. And Matthew's other name is Levi. Levi. So Matthew Levi, son of Alphaeus or Cleopas, right? Son of Cleopas. Did I put that up there? Yeah, Bar, Bar Alphaeus. And so we do know that much about him. We'll transfer then or, or shift our focus to Matthew the Apostle. Um, and we find out if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to flip around a little bit here at the beginning. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. I'm going to go ahead and start reading it just for time's sake. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office and He said to him, follow me. Okay, so this is the Matthew that we're speaking of here, the tax collector or the publican. Publican is another name for one who works among the people, okay, as a servant of the people, if you will. He was a tax collector, a publican. And we also find out a little bit more about Matthew in Luke chapter 5. So go ahead, I'm skipping Mark intentionally here. We're going to come back. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he, this is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So it's the same guy, right? Same, exact same story takes place. 
the indication this is, this is most likely the same guy. Matthew Levi, then, is a, a double name. Like we've seen, there's double names for almost all of the apostles. Most of the time, what happens is either they're given two names in their birth, or more often, they're given a name in their birth, and they have their father's name also, but then usually they're given another name along the way somewhere. And that appears to be the case with Matthew Levi. He's known among the other apostles, it seems, not as Matthew. In fact, you notice that in the Gospel of Matthew, when he is called an apostle, he calls himself Matthew. But Mark does not call him Matthew. Mark calls him Levi. I'm sorry, I meant Luke. Uh, so Luke calls him Levi, but take a look at Mark chapter 2, verse 14. Mark 2:14. And as he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Okay, in the same story, obviously, in the tax collector's office. So now we know, Matthew, Levi, bar Alphaeus. Okay, this is the man we're talking about. St. Jerome says this about his two names. This idea that Matthew was his kind of older name, or his natural name, and Levi was his supernatural name, or the name known among the apostles, as maybe in even almost his Christian name, if you will. St. Jerome says, The other evangelists, from respect to Matthew, have not called him by his common name. But say here, Levi, for he had both names. Matthew himself, according to what Solomon says, the righteous man accuses himself, calls himself Matthew and publican to show the readers that none need despair of salvation who turn to better things, seeing he was a tax collector or a publican and became an apostle. Okay, so there's this understanding that, this, that the other apostles always called him by either son of Alphaeus or, or Levi, son of Alphaeus. Okay? Clement of Alexandria describes Matthew as a man of austere personal habits, that he was a strict vegetarian. He lived on nuts and seeds and vegetables his whole life. And Clement states that he remained in Palestine for 15 years, ministering there to the Jewish community. There's a tradition, you know, that Matthew's Gospel was not originally written in Greek like the other apostles, but was written in, in Hebrew or more likely in Aramaic. Uh, and that certainly is the apostolic tradition of the church. Eusebius says that like John, he wrote only on the spur of necessity, being driven to write. He did not want to write the gospel down, but that the community demanded it of it. And Eusebius says, For Matthew, after preaching to the Hebrews, went about to go also to others. So basically, probably when he's about to leave Jerusalem or Palestine, he committed to writing his native tongue the gospel that bears his name. So notice that. In his native tongue, okay, Aramaic, his name is so by his writing supplied for those whom he was leaving the loss of his presence. Where exactly Matthew went after he left Jerusalem, like many of the other apostles, is under debate. Okay, however, it, it is believed that he, many believe that he ended up in Ethiopia. And in fact, the Roman martyrology uh, states that he was martyred there in Ethiopia. Uh, you have in front of you then the story of Matthew. It's a bit on the long side, but I'm going to do my best to run through this for you. It comes to us from the mid-6th century text. 
And this, look, this is why many say these, these stories about the apostles are fanciful, and certainly some of them are fanciful. But underneath that story, there's also some historical content that I think we can grab hold of in an understanding, at least as a minimum, of the view of the early Christian community as they saw these great men that founded their church. And so here we have the story of the, the, the evangelist Matthew. After departing from Jerusalem, the holy apostle Matthew preached the glad tidings of the gospel in many lands, proclaiming the good news of Christ. He passed through Macedonia, Syria, Persia, Parthia, and Media. So he went, saying he went north first, establishing churches there and in other places. He underwent many tortures, thirst, hunger, and scourging, all of which he endured for God was his helper. He traveled all the way to about Ethiopia, which had fallen to him by lot. You remember I told you there's this early tradition among many of the, of the early historians and writers that the reason why these guys went out the way they did, and we had that beautiful map that if we draw those lines, it's almost like that bursting star, that they just divided the entire known world among them and said, you're going there and you're going there. And, and we'll see later that one of the traditions is that Peter is actually the one that allotted each section to each of the apostles. Okay, So the story goes on here. He enlightened Ethiopia uh, with the light of knowledge of the gospel. Finally, guided by the Holy Spirit, he arrived in the land of the cannibals. There he entered a city known as Mermina, Mermina. And having converted several souls to Christ, he appointed Platon, his fellow traveler, to be their bishop and built a little church. As the Lord had promised, all the cannibals were baptized, received not only bodily cleansing, but purification and beauty of soul as well, having put off the old man and arrayed themselves in Christ, the new man. Having been appraised of what had transpired, Prince Fulvian became enraged at the apostle uh, because the whole city was going over to him. Forsaking its gods, the prince commanded his warriors to lay hold of the holy apostle Matthew and to stretch him out face down upon the ground and to affix his hands and feet to the ground with spikes. When this was done, on the tyrant's command, the servants assembled a great quantity of branches and brushwood and they brought pitch and brimstone and placing all of this on the holy Matthew, uh, set it afire. Yet when the fire rose up in a great flame and all thought that the apostle of Christ had already perished therein, suddenly the fire, the fire died out and the flame was extinguished and the holy Matthew was seen alive and unharmed, glorifying God, refusing to acknowledge the power of God and what had transpired, that is, that the herald of Christ had been preserved alive and unharmed by the fire, Fulvian made an iniquitous accusation against the righteous man, calling him a sorcerer, saying, It is by sorcery that Matthew hath quenched the fire and remained alive in the midst thereof. Then he gave orders that yet more would be brought, and they doused him with dolphin oil, pitch and tar and tinder was set beneath, and the pyre was kindled. Furthermore, he commanded that twelve of his golden idols be brought, and, set, and setting them in a circle around the fire, he called upon them for aid, that through their power Matthew might not be delivered from the flame, but might be reduced to ashes. Stop for a second. We talked last time at the very end during Q&A. Why did they want to burn these men? This was a common way of getting rid of the Christians. Burn them. Why? Nothing would be left of them to reverence. Okay? And this is one of the reasons why the church, for the vast majority of her life, has not allowed for the cremation of Christian bodies. Okay? These are holy relics. Not only these great men, but the Christians... Today, we are called the saints of God. 
That's what we're called as members of the church, as members of Christ, the saints. And when one of the saints reposes in the Lord, we reverence their body and not burn it. Okay? But the apostle prayed to the Lord of hosts in the midst of the fire and he shook that He show forth His invincible power, reveal the impotence of the gods of the pagans, and, and put to shame those who put their trust in them. And suddenly, the flame of the fire shot forth upon the golden idols with a loud clap as of thunder, and they melted like wax from the heat thereof. And many of the unbelievers that were standing about were burned as well. And from the burning idols there issued forth a flame in the form of a serpent, and it stretched itself toward Fulvian, threatening him to such an extent that he was unable to flee or save him, himself from danger, until with humbly, humble entreaty he called upon the apostle to deliver him uh, from destruction. The apostle rebuked the fire, and straightway the flame died down, and the figure of the fiery serpent vanished. Fulvian wished to bring the saint out of the fire with honor, but the latter, having prayed, Lord, into thy hands I surrender my soul, departed to heavenly bliss. The story goes on to tell that Fulvian repented then of his sin and was baptized. Okay. Interesting? Okay. We're going to move along now very quickly to St. Andrew, the Apostle Andrew, of course, brother of St. Peter the Great, the preeminent prince of the apostles. Andrew is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. Almost every one of those times is mentioned in relationship to Peter. Okay? But he's also mentioned, when he's not mentioned in relationship to Peter, he's mentioned in relationship to who? Do you remember? His buddy from, from Bethsaida? Philip. That's right. Philip was also, a, was also a fisherman up there in Bethsaida. And so... The two of them were together on a number of occasions. One of the times we mentioned last week was at the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. Remember, Philip said, the Lord says, Philip, come on over here. We've got to feed these people. Sometimes I feel like at the Institute sometimes. <laughs> it's just going to, I mean, we don't have enough money to feed all these people. Again, how I feel like at the Institute a lot of times. And then he, the Lord calls Andrew over and Andrew says, we, the, there's a boy here. And they brings the, the, the loaves and fishes to him. So they're, they're mentioned together. I did make a mistake last time. And was it in relationship to Philip? It was in relationship to Philip. I said he had been a disciple of John the Baptist. Of course, he's mentioned there in John chapter 1, but it's when Jesus goes up to Galilee. However, I would still claim that the majority of these guys knew John the Baptist. The majority of them probably spent time with him. As we see with James and John, John the Baptist clearly did not call his followers to be with him 100% of the time. So they were with him sometimes and they left. They went back up to their father and fished with them and came back and forth like that. Um, and so certainly, you know, these guys would have known John the Baptist and probably had, had even traveled with him. Anyways, John tells us that Andrew, of course, uh, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And Matthew and Mark both tell us that he was a fisherman. Okay, As I said, he brought the boy with the five loaves and two fishes. We know that Peter was from Bethsaida, and therefore we can conjecture that also Andrew was from there also. The tradition tells us that Andrew was one of the apostles that was a faithful celibate, which is very unusual at the time among the Jews to be celibate. There was one community, though, was known 
for supporting the life of celibacy, and that was the Essene community. There's a tradition, of course, that John was either from the Essene community or had connections with them. And, uh, and certainly interesting here that Andrew was known as a celibate, um, as well as John the Evangelist, who, of course, was also a disciple of John the Baptist. Okay, we'll get to that a little bit later. So here we have two disciples of John the Baptist who are both celibate, following John the Baptist's own lifestyle. So very interesting. After Pentecost, Eusebius tells us that it fell to Andrew to go to Bithynia, Chalcedon, Byzantium, which would become eventually Constantinople, and all the way around the Black Sea, even to the Danube River. And so from here, it, it appears that he came up through Antioch, through Syria, in here to Asia Minor, and traveled, probably traveled around this way, around the, what sea is this? The Black Sea, okay. Came up and did some preaching up in this area where he was joined uh, with Matthias. It, there's a tradition also that Peter met him here at the edge of the Black Sea down in the south and traveled with him for a while there and the two brothers preached together. And he traveled around here into Asia Minor and finally came down here through what we know as Greece and down near Corinth to a, a city called Patria or Patras. And that is where he was martyred. According to the third century document, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, the Didascalia of the Twelve Apostles, uh, Andrew established the Episcopal See of Byzantium, and which would become one of the major centers of Christianity, is still the center of the Eastern Orthodox churches, and so they claim Andrew as their founding apostle. It's also said that he ventured, as I said, to the northeast corner of the Sea of the Black Sea, and preached among the Scythians. And it's there that he, as I said, he met Matthias, and that Matthias, that there were cannibals living up in this area, that Matthias was captured by the cannibals, was about to be eaten, and that Andrew saved his brother apostle from destruction. He apparently journeyed even up into Armenia, Armenia into Asia Minor and Greece, and as I said, uh, eventually uh, down for his, to his martyrdom. But that... Along the way, eventually Peter departed from him, making his way to Rome. We'll talk about Peter tonight, of course. Uh, in the third century, Acts of Andrew tell of his eventual martyrdom, but also state that he performed exorcisms, that he healed the sick, that he was thrown into a lion's den like Daniel and lived to tell the story, but that he was eventually martyred for Christ. Uh, and as again, I said, in Patria down here, right near Corinth. Okay, and so you have the story of the martyrdom of St. Andrew there. Again, I've said this before, but the reason I want to use these texts for you guys is because I could stand up here and tell stories all day long to you, but these are the, the most ancient stories we have of these men. And when we're reading them, you're receiving a gift from, that's come down for hundreds and hundreds, over a thousand years. But yet, unfortunately, rarely ever known among the Christians. And so it's a great opportunity for us to be reading these treasures 
Okay, passing through many lands, Andrew reached the Achaean city of Patras. He lodged with a certain respected man of the name of Sosius. He raised him up from his bed of sickness and afterwards converted the whole city of Patras to Christ. At that time, Maximilla, the wife of the proconsul, Aegides fell prey to a grievous affliction of the eye. Though she visited every doctor, yet she derived no benefit from their administrations and only succeeded in expending nearly all of her substance on their fees and treatments. Aegides, observing his wife's manifest decline, fell into despair, for his great wealth notwithstanding, no amount of money could buy her cure. One of his household, however, remembered the apostle, for he had received healing from his hand before, and he hastened and besought him his help for his master's wife. The saint then came and placed his hand upon her, and her health was restored forthwith, and she arose from her couch. Shortly thereafter, Aegides went to Rome to appear before Caesar to make report of his administration and to receive further orders. And it was not long before Jesus returned from Rome. However, certain eunuchs approached him and said, From the day of your departure to Rome until this moment, Maximilla has not taken her regular meals, but has kept a strict fast. Yes, and she utters blasphemies against other deities, preferring to worship the Christ preached by the stranger Andrew. Truthfully, her mind and heart are fixed upon him and him alone. When Aegeides heard this, he was perplexed and astonished, and straightway the demons surrounded him, and he began to act like a man who had lost his mind, uttering insults and threats against the Lord's apostle, and he ordered his guard to arrest the saint, while he considered what manner of death he would inflict upon Andrew. Aegeides ordered the apostle cast into prison. Then he commanded that the saint be stretched out and beaten. And when those who beat him three at a time had alternated seven times, the holy one was set on his feet and brought before the judge. And the judge said to him, Listen to me, O Andrew, and shed not your blood in vain. If you will not obey me, I will crucify you on a cross. To this the holy Andrew answered, I am a slave of the cross of Christ, and I desire death on a cross. You can escape everlasting torment if, having tested my endurance, you will believe in Christ, for I grieve over your damnation more than my own sufferings. My sufferings will end in a day or two at best, but your sufferings will not come to an end even after a thousand years. Thus do not increase your torments. Kindle not your, yourself everlasting fire. Enraged, Aegeides ordered the holy Andrew crucified on a cross, his hands and feet bound. He did not wish him affixed by nails, lest he die in but a short time. For he thought that by hanging him bound, he might subject him to greater tortures. The holy Andrew cried with a loud voice, O Lord Jesus Christ, my teacher, whom I have loved, whom I have known, whom I confess, whom I desire to see, through whom I have become what I am. O Lord Jesus, receive my spirit in peace, for the time has come for me to go to your heavenly home and look upon you, whom I have so ardently desired. When he said this, a light like lightning from heaven illumined him in the sight of all. This heavenly light shone round him for the space of half an hour. And when the light departed, the holy apostle surrendered his spirit and departed amid brilliant light to stand before the Lord. This took place on the last day of the month of November in the city of Patras in Achaia, where ever since through the prayers of the apostle, many benefactions were bestowed upon the people. 
The fear of God was on all, and there was no one who did not believe in our God and Savior, who desires to save all men and lead them to the knowledge of the truth, to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's believed that he died on the 30th day of November in the year 69 A.D. It would have been uh, the, the persecution or just after the end of the persecution of Nero. Okay? You know also that Andrew is a patron saint of Scotland. Okay? The Apostle Thomas. The Apostle Thomas, known as? Yeah. Doubting Thomas, right? Or known as? The twin, or known as? Didymus. Didymus. In fact, open your Bibles with me to John. I think it's unfortunately that he's known as Doubting Thomas because, first of all, he's a saint of the church, number one, and uh, I wonder how many of us would have believed. So unless you want to put Doubting before your name or my name, I think maybe we should stop that, that practice. But anyways, you'll see in chapter 20 of John, verse 24, I will read you from my Bible while you read from yours. Okay, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called... And in my Bible, called the twin. Didymus means twin. In fact, Thomas also means twin. Okay, in the Hebrew. So anyways, so these are, he's known as simply the twin. Okay, probably because he was a twin. That was probably one of my deeper insights in the whole series. Um, make sure you write that down. Eusebius relates that his given name was actually, not to confuse everything even more, but was actually Jude. Okay, so now we have two Judes. Two Judes. Jude Thomas. Jude Thomas, or Jude the twin. You can see why he was simply called the twin. Easier to distinguish him from Jude, brother of Jesus. Okay? In John chapter 11, verse 16, I think we get the best sense of who this man is. Not a doubter, but a very faithful follower of Christ. You'll know that in John chapter 11 is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And if you take a look at 11, verse 8, you remember Jesus finds out that Lazarus was sick. And he says, it says, and he waited two days. Okay, he waited for Lazarus to die so that he could go and raise him from the dead. So he waits two days. And then in, in verse, verse 8, it says, well, let's go, let's go back to verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were but now seeking to stone you. Are you going again? In other words, you go up one more time, they're going to kill you. They knew what was going to happen. And sure enough, it's right after this, he makes his way up through Jericho and he makes his way up to Bethany to the place where Lazarus had died. And then it's just over the hill from Bethany. You come into Jerusalem and he makes his way for the Passion down, down the Mount of Olives and into the city of Jerusalem. Okay, But take a look now down verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Okay, you want to know what attribute we should give to Thomas. It is that he is faithful 
to the end. He was willing to go with Christ to die with Him. And that's how we should remember Him. Um, the Acts of Thomas, which come to us from probably the early 3rd century, around 200 A.D., describe Thomas as a carpenter and as a member of Jesus' close family. Okay, so again, another relative, if this tradition is correct, another close relative of Christ. And I've been trying to make this point all along. You're not going to remember maybe every aspect of every guy here, but to remember that Jesus' closest friends were his brothers, his cousins, his fishing buddies, if you will, the guys he knew. They all knew each other. And they built a lifetime relationship with each other. What was Jesus doing for all those 30 years? He was making friends. So that when it came time to start his mission, he didn't go out to people that didn't know him. He went and called the guys that did know him and that he had built a relationship with. What an example that is to our missionary work. If we're to go out and make disciples for Christ, if we're to gain disciples around us like the apostles did, which is exactly what we're supposed to be doing, if we're going to be doing that, the fundamental first step is to build a relationship with people. And I think the reason why the church is struggling today in its missionary work is because we're not building relationships with each other. That's why it's fundamentally important here at the Institute, why I always demand that we put the food out, we have music playing, I encourage you to come early, we have dinners on Sunday nights oftentimes, to get to know each other. Because if we're going to build disciples for Christ, we first have to build relationships with people. Okay, now you have in front of you the story from the Acts of Thomas in the year, again, from right around 200 A.D. It comes to us, uh, at least in written form. At that season, all we, the apostles, were at Jerusalem. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John and his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the Canaanite. What do you know when you see Canaanite there? What word is that? Zealot, or maybe we'd better... Zealous, right? Simon the zealous one. Zealous for what? Zealous for Christ. And Judas, or Jude, the brother of James, and we divided the regions of the world that every one of us should go into the region that fell to him and unto the nations where the Lord sent him. According to the lot, therefore, India fell to Jude Thomas. Again, Thomas the twin, right? Who is also twin. But he would not go, saying that by reason of the weakness of the flesh, he could not travel. And I am a Hebrew man. How can I go among the Indians and preach the truth? And as he thus reasoned and spoke, the Savior appeared to him by night and said to him, Fear not, Thomas, go to India and preach the word there, for my grace is with you. But he insisted, he said, he would not obey. He says, Where you would send me, send me, but elsewhere, for to the Indians I will not go. Okay? <laughs> Anything, Lord, but that. All right. Okay. And while, while he thus spoke and thought, he, it, it chanced that there uh, was there a certain merchant come from India whose name was Abanis, sent from King Gundaforas. And by the way, they've done some research and actually found that this king did exist at the time. Okay, And having commandment from him to buy a carpenter and bring him unto him. What was happening in the longer story is Gundaforas wanted to build his, his palace and he wanted to find the best carpenter to do it. And so he sent his servant out. He says, go to Palestine. I know they know how to build there. And he goes and he's in the marketplace looking for someone. And at that moment, let's see what happens. Now the Lord appeared. And the Lord seeing him walking in the marketplace at noon said to him, would you buy a carpenter? 
And he said to him, yes. And the Lord said to him, I have a slave that is a carpenter and I desire to sell him. And saying, and so saying, he showed him Thomas afar off and agreed with him for three litre of silver unstamped and wrote a deed of sale saying, I, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, acknowledge that I have sold my slave, Judas, by name to you, or Thomas, right? Jude Thomas, by name to you, Abenis, uh, a merchant of Gundaforest, king of the Indians. And when the deed was finished, the Savior took Jude Thomas and led him away to Abenis, the merchant. And when Abenis saw him, he said to him, Is this your master? And the apostle said, Yes, he is my Lord. And he said to him, I have bought you from him. And the apostle held his peace. Okay? The story goes on, and you're more than welcome to go look that up. You can Google Acts of Thomas and find the story. And it's a beautiful story that he finally makes his way to this kingdom. And the king Gundaforce is about to leave on a long voyage and leaves Jude Thomas with a bundle of money to pay for the construction of the palace, saying, on my return, I want my palace finished. Okay? Well, Thomas took the money. He went to the place where he was to build collected all of the slaves, all the poor people, and handed all the money out to them. Okay? The king then went, sent, about halfway in his voyage, sent one of his servants back to check on the building. He met Jude Thomas, and Thomas said, I have built everything but the roof, but I need more money to build the roof. So they sent him more money, more gold and silver. He then went back, collected all the servants, and distributed all the money again. When the king came back, you can imagine, when he found that there was no no building, and became furious and threw him into prison. In the meantime, the king's brother became deathly ill and closed his eyes to this world and received a vision of heaven. God restored him to life and he rose up from his deathbed and he told his brother, I have seen your mansion and it is what I want if you will give it to me. And he says, I have no mansion. He says, yes, it is the most beautiful mansion I have ever seen. And told him the story of his vision in heaven. And so, Thomas was eventually, Jude Thomas was eventually restored. Okay? He then traveled from there, as the story goes, and the Didascalia of the Twelve Apostles, again, that third century document, says, India and all its own countries and those bordering even to the furthest sea received the apostles' hand of priesthood from Jude Thomas who was guide and ruler of the church, which he built there and ministered there. There's an ancient song that comes from India. I, don't, I tried to look up the dating of it, but as with many ancient songs, they're just lost to tradition. They're so old. But the song among the, the Christian Indians says that Thomas arrived in India in 49 AD. And then it lists all of his accomplishments. It says that he baptized more than 17,000 Hindus, that he raised 19 people from the dead, that he performed 260 exorcisms, healed 230 lepers, and restored to sight 250 blind men. He cured 220 paralytics, and he ordained many men to the priesthood and many bishops. The Acts of Thomas, which we read some of earlier, uh, says that he lived on bread and water only and that he owned only one garment. According to the tradition, Thomas eventually converted the wife of a particular Indian king, Mazde. When the king learned of his wife's conversion to Christ, 
he had Thomas arrested and commanded that red-hot plates be brought and the apostle was placed on top of them and then taken and thrown into prison. The next day, when the gate was unlocked to see him, he was alive, well, and healthy. The text you have there at the bottom of your page tells about his ultimate martyrdom. When they saw him walk out of this jail, the advisor to the king said, compel him to worship and offer sacrifice to the God of the Son, that he may thereby anger his God who keeps him unharmed amid tortures. Taking Thomas, the king went forth from the city with his soldiers and all thought that he went to see some miracle wrought by the apostle. But when they had gone nearly a mile, the king gave Thomas into the hands of five soldiers, ordering them to go with him to the mountain and there to run him through with spears. Thomas, asking permission of the soldiers to pray, entreated the Lord, praying, O Lord my God, hope and redemption of the faithful, lead me to you this day, that my soul may not be hindered in its ascent. Behold, I have completed the work which you assigned to me, and have carried out your commands. As your slave did you sell me, therefore render unto me my freedom this day. Thereupon the apostle blessed the faithful. Turning then to the soldiers, he said, carry out now the king's orders. Then the soldiers ran him through with five spears, and thus the blessed Thomas ended his earthly sojourn near the city of Mylapore. Okay. To our last two apostles, I saved the best for last. Let's save the best for last. Peter and John. We'll do Peter, and then we'll do John because he was the last apostle to repose in the Lord. And the only one that we know for certain did not suffer martyrdom in the bloody martyrdom sense. But as we talked about at the first talk, he certainly suffered martyrdom. I would say the best known apostle, Peter, and the best loved apostle, John. Simon Peter or Cephas or Cephas, we, we hear him spoken of in the gospel text, especially in John. He ranks first in every single listing of the apostles. The archaeologists who have done excavations underneath St. Peter's and uncovered uh, his bones, his relics, the archaeologists describe him as they're amazing what they can do in archaeology now when they see bones and, and can study them, that he was stocky, he was muscular, that he was short, probably about five feet four inches tall, that he died most likely right around the age of 67, Okay, according to the dating of his bones, and uh, assuming that Peter's death was around 67 A.D., which is what the tradition tells us, we can assume that he was born between 1 and 6 B.C., which is about the same age as Jesus. Okay, he was from Bethsaida, and unfortunately, on our map up here, we don't have we have a little bit of the Dead Sea there, and of course, the Jordan River runs up to the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida is right at the tip-top of the Sea of Galilee at where the water of the Jordan River, the headwaters of the Jordan River, dump into the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and it is a fishing village. He was a fisherman. He was from the, fa uh, the family of John or Jonah, right? It was Bar-Jonah. And tradition tells us that Peter's mother's name was Joanna. And of course, Peter's brother's name was Andrew. We do know for certain that Peter was married, right? 
Okay, because Jesus goes to his mother-in-law's house. Tradition relates that his wife's name was Perpetua and that they had a daughter who became a paralytic. She was crippled at the age of 10 from an illness. Her name comes down to us as Petronilla. So Perpetua Petronilla, very nice. In fact, there's been some excavations in Rome and they have found... Uh, a certain uh, girl by the name of Petronilla, daughter of Peter, the inscription says, okay, in Rome. So it's possible that she lived even to Rome, which the tradition tells us his wife also did when she traveled with him. We know, of course, that it was Peter on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus appeared to his apostles after the resurrection. It was Peter when the others were struggling to get the miraculous catch of fish into the boat. It was Peter that could not take it any longer, threw himself off the boat and swam to Christ when Jesus had that coal fire ready to remind him of his denial and then ask him three times if he loved him. A beautiful scene in the Gospel of John. It's there in John chapter 21. You can turn there. John chapter 21. That we get what most believe is Christ's prophecy of Peter's own death. This is right after the three questions. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, and so forth. Chapter 21, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. You remember, stop for a second, you remember at the Last Supper, who's the one that says, though they all run away from you, I will not. I will, I will be faithful. I will never deny you, right? Peter, in some sense, thought he could do it, even do it himself. I will never, I will never deny you. And here Jesus, after he reminds Peter of his denial, says to him, when you were young, you walked where you would walk, but you could not walk where I would have had you walk. And he says, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. And you know the tradition of Peter's death. You will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and another will carry you where you would not wish to go. And who is the other who will carry him where he would not wish to go? Jesus. Jesus will give Christ, will give Peter the strength to make his final journey and will in some sense carry him to it, as you will see. In Acts of the Apostles, Peter is arrested with John after they raise the paralytic sitting outside the temple. We also know that he traveled to the city of Joppa right on the coast where he healed Tabitha and that he traveled north to Caesarea Maritime, just about 40 uh, miles north to the house of of Cornelius, who obviously was not a Jew, and there he baptized the family of Cornelius, which ended up blowing up into the first major controversy that the Christians faced, which you should just remember as the controversy of the circumcision party. There was a whole party of the Jews. Of course, all the Christians at the time were Jews. So all of a sudden, they're faced with, what do we do about the Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised first? before they can be baptized. In fact, that is exactly what happens with the story of Cornelius. We won't get into it, but he goes up to the family and apparently there's an argument among the guys that are with Peter and all of a sudden, the gift of the Holy Spirit 
chrismation or confirmation, the gift of the Holy Spirit descends upon the family of Cornelius without baptism. And Peter looks around and says, now are you guys going to deny the water for baptism? Huh? See, the Holy Spirit has been given by God. And so they went and got water and they baptized him. Okay? So a, a little bit of reversal of the sacraments. Yeah, how is that possible? God is not bound by the sacraments. He gives them to us as a gift. So he used this opportunity to teach them. Peter then returns to Jerusalem and they have the first council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So we know that Peter kind of went on an apostolic journey. After the resurrection, after Pentecost, he then comes back to Jerusalem where they hold the council in Acts chapter 15. And you can read that on your own. Eusebius tells us that Peter then divided the world and appointed the apostles to go. And St. Paul tells us in Galatians, in chapter 2, verse 8, it says that Peter was chosen to go and preach among those of the dispersion, among the Jews. Okay? Whereas Paul is going to go and preach among the Gentiles. Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. It's sometime after that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, that it says Peter went up to Antioch, and that is where Paul met him and had a little bit of a, you know, a little back and forth. They didn't quite see eye to eye at that moment. And uh, so we know that he went north all the way up here to Antioch, was found there, and ordained the bishop, the first bishop of Antioch there, during his visit, St. Gregory the Great says that Peter stayed in Antioch for seven years. And then the tradition tells us that he traveled from Antioch and then worked primarily up in this area in Asia Minor and around Ephesus, working there among the dispersion. Turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion. Who are the exiles of the dispersion? Does anyone know? What's that? The Jews in what dispersion? The diaspora, yeah. When the Christians, yeah, got out of, got out of Jerusalem and before its destruction. And so they end up fleeing Jerusalem and they end up out there and they're in the dispersion in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And those are all in this area of Asia Minor where he was preaching. Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, St. Paul is upset with how he's being treated as an apostle. And you'll want to, uh, to see this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 3. He says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to our food and drink? Do we not have a right to be accompanied by a wife as the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is, of course, Cephas or Peter. Okay? So apparently, apparently, Peter was traveling with his wife even after Pentecost, and there is a tradition that she ends up making her way with him to Rome. She's arrested with him, and he sees her off from jail as she's taken to her own martyrdom. Okay? Eventually, he made his way to Rome and confronted there Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician. You remember Simon the Magician from Acts chapter 8, I believe it is. Yes, Acts chapter 8. Remember, Philip had first confronted Simon the Magician. There's a belief that he ended up in Rome in Nero's court. 
and that he had become friends with the crazy man Nero. And there he was holding the people of Rome in demonic bondage. And it, Peter, it was believed that Peter went to Rome for the express purpose to confront Simon the magician. Remember, Simon had tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit as though it was magic. Okay, Eusebius believed that, that Peter went there directly to confront him and tells us this beautifully. Again, this is Eusebius. Clad in divine armor like a noble captain of God, he brought the precious merchandise of the spiritual light from the east to those in the west, preaching the good news of the light itself and the soul-saving word, the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. Thus, when the divine word had made its home among the people of Rome, Simon's power was extinguished and destroyed at once with the man himself. It's believed Peter left Rome then and traveled, some say, into Spain. There's a number of traditions. He made his way from Spain into North Africa, eventually across into Egypt and back to Jerusalem in time for the assumption of the Mother of God. It's believed all the apostles were brought there miraculously to be there at the bedside of the Holy Theotokos. From Jerusalem then, he returned again to Rome. Right around 50 A.D. Okay, and then we know eventually he did, did return to Rome during the later year, years of Nero's reign. Nero reigned from 54 to 68. Peter probably came back in somewhere between, so I said 54, right? 54 to 68. He probably came back into Rome sometime between 64 and 68. Of course, you know what happened in 64 AD. If you don't, I'm going to tell you the story in just a minute. The historian Suetonius says that Nero showed neither discrimination nor moderation in putting to death whomever he pleased at any pretext whatever. The turning point for St. Peter and the community, the Christian community in Rome, came eventually on July 18th, 64 A.D. Dr. Warren Carroll describes it this way. Then came the lurid night of July 18th, 1964, okay. 64 A.D. And everything changed. 250 years of persecution by the unchallenged rulers of Western civilization began when it occurred to the increasingly psychotic Nero to blame the Christians for the uncontrollable fires which started that night and in nine infernal days destroyed the greater part of the city of Rome. Nero was not in Rome itself at the time, but Peter certainly knew that the end was close by. I'm going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter 4, 7 says this. Listen to Peter's words. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, keep sane and sober for your prayers. Above all, hold unfailing your love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. St. Peter certainly knew what was coming for him and his, and his community. Dr. Carroll again describes it this way. In his garden across the Tiber by the Vatican Hill, near where Peter had probably lived when he first came to Rome, 
22 years before, Nero held the circus games, which could no longer be held in the two great amphitheaters, damaged in the fire. During those games in the fall of 64, many of the Christians whom Nero's police had arrested were thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. Others were dressed in clothing soaked in pitch and sulfur and lit as human torches along the Appian Way as Nero raced by in his chariot. The Roman historian Tacitus says that first Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for fire. Three years later, Nero's persecution reached its fever pitch and the great apostles, Peter and Paul, were both arrested. Hegesippus tells the story that the small Christian community that was left in Rome begged Peter to flee, but he refused. They continued to insist and finally he gave in and agreed. On his way out of the city of Rome, he looked up and beheld a vision of Christ. Christ was coming toward him, toward the city of Rome, and he was carrying his cross. Peter, bowing low to the ground, said, Where are you going, my Lord? Jesus answered, I am going to Rome to be crucified anew. Peter turned around. He went back to Rome and is well known he was crucified there. The tradition says that when he was being brought to his crucifixion, he asked that he not be crucified as his Savior had. His words are this, I am not worthy to be crucified as my Christ, upright. For thus he was crucified so he could look down to earth where he would descend into Hades to deliver the souls therein. Crucify me rather head down that I may look to heaven whither I will go. The tradition tells us that he died on June 29th in the year 67 AD. Our final apostle that we want to look at is John, St. John the Beloved, St. John the Evangelist. We know John is the son of... Come on. You're all cheating up there. I saw those eyes all turn. The son of Zebedee and brother of... James the Great, he was called a son of? Son of Thunder. We oftentimes see John as a, a very slight man, very pretty and petite, okay? But I think this is a poor description of the great fisherman from Bethsaida. He was a son of thunder that called down the power of God upon unbelievers, okay? He was a powerful man. It is believed that he died in the year 100, as I said, was from the city of Bethsaida. In the Scriptures, we hear about him in the Gospel of John. And you can turn there to chapter 1 of John. Okay? He was a disciple, is believed, of John the Baptist. If you look at verse 35, chapter 1, verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about noon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and so forth. Okay? He is 
in the Gospel of John, the other disciple. He is the one that is not named. And the belief is from the earliest days of the church that he, being a writer of the Gospel in an act of humility, left his name out of every single moment when he could have been mentioned. He is the beloved one who leans upon the breast of the Lord. He is the other man standing there with Peter after the resurrection. He alone remained at the cross. And of course, we know that Mary, the mother of God, was given to him. This question was asked before about Joseph's sons and Mary. Kathy was asking that question at the first week. I came across a little insight in one of the books, and I'll share it with you during Q&A if you want. Okay, why it was that, that, uh, that Mary was given to John, at least according to one author's theory. He was the one that witnessed the empty tomb. He outran, okay, he outran the others together. He looked inside and saw and believed. Okay, um, in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, he heals the paralytic with Peter. And in Galatians chapter 2, he is called by Paul one of the pillars of the church along with Peter and James the righteous. Take a look at John chapter 21 for a second. We've already looked at it in regards to Peter. But take a look at this because it says something about John's eventual death. John chapter 21 verse 20. This is after, after Jesus says to him, to Peter, that another is going to carry you and you'll be stretched out and crucified. You don't say that, but that's what the tradition is that, that, that Jesus was talking about. Chapter 21, verse 20, Peter turned and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember, no, he's, he's unnamed. Who had lain close to the breast of the Lord at the, at the supper. And he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about that man? Notice John leaves his name out again. Okay? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And the saying spread abroad that among the brethren the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say it to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Again, this is John writing, right? So he's writing, hey guys, remember Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die now. Don't start believing that. Okay. And the tradition tells us that he remained in Jerusalem until the death of James the righteous and probably remained there also until the death of the mother of God and the assumption of the mother of God. And that he traveled from Jerusalem to Rome and there was reunited with his friend Peter. Tertullian and Jerome both state that John was nearly martyred in Rome when he was arrested and thrown into boiling oil. He was made to drink a large quantity of poison and he lived to tell the story. There are two traditions at this point that he either was exiled at that moment to the island of Patmos, which until I started doing the research for that, I thought that was the primary tradition, but actually it appears that it's not the case. That he in Rome was thrown into the oil by none other than Nero himself because he would have been in Rome during the time of the persecution. And that he ended up going from Rome and ending up in Ephesus right around 66 or 67 AD. Now we know also that Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome at that exact time. Apparently, 
it seems that John left Rome knowing that the apostle to Asia Minor, that John, knowing that the infant church in Asia Minor was without its father, St. Paul, he then left Rome after the martyrdom of Peter and Paul and journeyed to Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, was one of the churches established and maintained by St. Paul. And it's there that he, that he confirmed the church. In his Apocalypse, we read that he wrote to the seven churches of the Apocalypse. All seven of those churches are here in Asia Minor, right circling around the city of Ephesus. Those churches which would have been in the umbrella of the great Apostle. Okay? In the year 81 AD, Domitian, the emperor, came to power. He declared himself to be both Lord and God. In fact, he made silver statues of himself to be placed in the pagan temples in Rome. Like Nero before him, he became mad with power. Eusebius tells us that many were the victims of Domitian's appalling cruelty. At Rome, great numbers of men distinguished by birth were executed without a fair trial. And that there is ample evidence that at this time the apostle, again this is Eusebius, that the apostle and evangelist John was still alive and because of his testimony to the Word of God was sentenced to be confined to the island of Patmos. Eusebius tells us that after 15 years, Domitian was succeeded by Nerva who stopped the persecution and restored John to Ephesus. And when he came back to Ephesus, he confirmed the church there. While he's in Patmos, it's believed that he wrote both the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And so I have for you your, our final reading, which is not about his death, although I have a quotation for you from St. Prochorus, who accompanied John, about his death. John comes back to uh, the church, and the story picks up. He says, Listen to a tale that is not just a tale, but a true account of John the Apostle, handed down and carefully remembered when the tyrant was dead and John was moved to the island of Patmos to Ephesus. He used to go when asked to the neighboring districts of the Gentile people, sometimes to appoint bishops, sometimes to organize whole churches, sometimes to ordain one person of those pointed out by the Spirit. So it happened that he arrived at a city not far off, and he looked at the bishop already appointed, and indicating a youngster, he had notice of an ardent spirit. He said, I leave this young man in your keeping with all earnestness in the presence of the church, and the Christ is my witness. He then returned to Ephesus, and the cleric took home the youngster, entrusted to his care, brought him up, kept him in his company, looked after him, and finally gave him the grace of baptism. After this, he relaxed his constant care and watchfulness, and having put upon him the seal of the Lord as the perfect protection. But the youngster snatched at liberty too soon and was led sadly astray by others of his own age who were idle, dissolute, and evil livers. Little by little, he fell into their ways, completely renouncing God's salvation. He was no longer content with petty offenses, but as his life was already in ruins, he decided to commit a major crime and suffer the same fate as the others. He took these same young renegades and formed them into a gang of bandits, of which he was the master, uh, surpassing them all in violence, cruelty, and bloodthirstiness. Time went by, and some, and some necessity having arisen, John was asked to pay another visit. When he had dealt with the business for which he had come, he said, Come now, bishop, 
pay me back the deposit which Christ and I left in your keeping in the presence of the church over which you presided as my witness. The old man sighed deeply and shed a tear. He is dead. How is he dead? He is dead to God. He turned out wicked and profligate, in short, a bandit. And now instead of the church, he has taken to the mountains with an armed gang of men like himself. Now you listen of how an authentic apostle of Jesus Christ acts. If you want to know what a Christian acts like in relationship to those who have been under his charge, the apostle rent his garment. He groaned aloud and beat his head. A fine guardian, he cried, I left of our brother's, uh, is, is left of our brother's soul. However, let me have a horse immediately and someone to show me the way. He galloped off from the church then and there just as he was. When he arrived at the place and was seized by the bandit sentry group, he made no attempt to escape and asked no mercy but shouted, This is what I have come for. Take me to your leader. As John approached, the youngster recognized him and filled with shame turned to flee. But John ran after him as hard as he could, forgetting his years and calling out, Why do you run away from me, child? From your own father, unarmed and very old. Be sorry for me child, not afraid of me. You still have hopes of life. I will account to Christ for you. If need be, I will gladly suffer your death as the Lord suffered death for us. To save you, I will give my own life. Stop. Believe. Christ sent me. When he heard this, the young man stopped and stood with his eyes on the ground. Then he threw down his weapons. Then he trembled and began to weep bitterly. When the old man came up, he flung himself his arms around him, pleading for himself with groans as best he could and baptized a second time with tears. But John solemnly pledged his word that he had found pardon for him from the Savior. Then he brought him back to the church, interceded for him with many prayers, shared with him the ordeal of continuous fasting, brought his mind under control and did not leave him we are told, till he had restored him to the church, giving a perfect example of true repentance and a perfect proof of regeneration, the trophy of a visible resurrection. The tradition coming down to the earliest days of the church was that the apostles each were accompanied by one of the seventy. And the man who accompanied John wrote of John's own death. It is said that John came back to the city of Ephesus a very old man and instructed two of his closest disciples to go and get shovels. They returned to their master and walked outside of the city of Ephesus to the hills. There John asked them to remain while he retired to pray. After praying for a long time, he called his two closest friends and asked them to dig a trench in the form of a cross. John then climbed into the tomb, placing his hands out like the Lord, and told them to bury him. They buried him up to his chest and then kissed him goodbye. He instructed them to take a veil, a cloth, and place it over his head and to leave him. They did leave him, and there he died. Eusebius, in conclusion to our series, I'll give you a quotation that I read to you last week. He says, Thus, under the influence of heavenly power and with divine cooperation, the doctrine of the Savior like the rays of the sun quickly illumined the whole world 
And straight away, in accordance with the divine Scriptures, the voice of the inspired evangelists and apostles went forth through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In every city and village, churches were quickly established, filled with multitudes of people like a replenished threshing floor. And those whose minds, in consequence of errors which had descended to them, from their forefathers were fettered by the ancient disease of idolatrous superstition or by the power of, God, of Christ operating through the teaching and the wonderful works of His disciples set free as it were from terrible masters. They renounced their abhorrence every species of, of demonic polytheism and confessed that there was only one God, the Creator of all things. And Him they honor with rites of true piety through the inspired and rational worship which is implanted by our Savior among men. Thank you very much. God bless you. Uh, Alright, question and answer. I was wondering if um, any of the apostles were alive for the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, cert certainly John was alive. It wasn't there. You mean there in Jerusalem when it fell? Not necessarily. Okay, well, John was alive. And there was others. I mean, I think we had... I think um, Nathaniel... I think Nathaniel died... If my memory serves me correct, that his year for death, at least as we know it, is 87. And uh, so... But certainly some of them were alive. I, I just don't... That's a good question. And when you have 12 guys with... You know, all these different stories in front of you, it's kind of hard to remember who's who and what they did exactly and when each one of them died, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's the case. Okay? Yeah, but sir, what's that? Jude in 79. Okay, there you have it. Okay? In fact, it's a great, it's a great point and, and interesting when you're reading these, these stories, but also when you're reading the Scriptures, when you're reading early documents of the church that didn't make it in the Scriptures, one of the key factors is, do they mention the fall of Jerusalem? It is such a major event that if, if it's not mentioned, it's likely that it was written prior to that event, right? Whereas they would mention it afterwards. Anyways, it's always one of those factors when looking up and trying to date things. Jesus uh, gave um, uh, Mary to John. Would you explain that a little bit since there were, seemed to be a lot of brothers and sisters? Uh -huh. And also there was a tradition that she lived in Ephesus and then when she did die, I heard that she did come back to Jerusalem and of course all the apostles came, to, came through, 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 I don't know how, but they appeared because they were all scattered all over the place. Yeah, there are two traditions. One that, he, um, that she died in Ephesus and one that, uh, that she died in Rome. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, thank you. See, that's good. When I say something really stupid, you guys just stop me. And then the whole thing will sound a lot better. Um, anyways, there's the, two, the, there's the two traditions. However, the more ancient tradition is that, uh, that she died in Jerusalem. And those that have gone to Jerusalem with me have gone to visit the place of her death and assumption. Uh, two different places, of course, that she died up on Mount Sion and then she was carried. We went over this in our, in our, in our talk together. We have the CDs back there. That she was carried down into the, what valley, Tom? 
The Kidron Valley, exactly. And in the Kidron Valley, there is a family tomb traditionally associated that, that, uh, that Joseph had been buried there. Uh, that St. Joachim, right? I believe St. Joachim and Anne also buried there and the Mother of God's burial place, but then, of course, taken into heaven. Um, and so there's, there's these two locations, very beautiful. Um, anyways, this is what this guy says, Bernard Ruffin, and it just caught me because Kathy asked this question before about why it was that, um, that Mary was given to John if John was a cousin and if Jesus had closer relations, brothers and things, and I'm not sure I had an answer to that, um, except, I, again, look, I don't want to get caught in the big argument of whether Joseph was young or whether he was old. I, I will tell you the more ancient tradition is that he was an older man and that he certainly, that he did have sons. In fact, it is in the liturgy, in the Byzantine liturgy, it states that James was a son of Joseph, the betrothed. And as we know, what we pray, we also believe. Lex Aronde, Lex Credendi. That goes for the entire uh, life of the church. Okay. So, but this is what this guy says. And uh, is it not? Please, it's not an East-West thing. It's not that at all. This guy happens to be a Roman Catholic, and this is what he's saying. Um, he says, "Why did Why did Jesus do that? It was there at the cross that Jesus entrusted his mother to John's care. Why did Jesus do this?" Is this not an argument against the existence of any brothers and sisters? He says, this is not necessarily the case. Mary was only about 50 and doubtless quite able to make her own choices and to take care of herself. We should remember that John was a bachelor and probably lived, uh, I, better to say, he, was, he made a vow of celibacy, okay? And probably lived with his parents. And then his mother was Mary's sister. It is certainly not remarkable for a widow to opt to live with her sister. Moreover, it is possible that no one was capable of providing for Mary as well as could her nephew John, who had taken this vow of celibacy. Okay? Very interesting. I'm not saying he's, he's right or wrong. I'm saying there it is. Okay? Um, but there was another point that I was, in my research that I read, read on, and that is that John spent the majority of his time... Uh, in Ephesus after he went to Rome. He lived in Ephesus after he went to Rome. Okay? And that in Rome he was arrested and attempted to be martyred there in Rome, right? And then made his way back to Ephesus. And the guy makes the, the point that at this point, Mary would have been an extremely old woman because John was already an old man. Okay? So she was an extremely old woman, and for her to make the journey all the way from Jerusalem to Rome to undergo the persecution of Nero in those days, and then to travel all the way back to Ephesus, establish a home there with John, and then die is highly unlikely just from a simple mathematical standpoint. Okay? Okay. Um, I was wondering if you could explain the relation between. Andrew in Scotland, and how I became the patron saint. Ah, Andrew in Scotland, yes. Again, I knew nothing, I was very interested, I knew nothing about this until I started to do our little research for our time together, and this is one of those points, you know, you always discover things when you're doing research, and this is one of those things that, um, I said, well, that was, that's very interesting, page 70 of this book. By the way, I said last time I wouldn't recommend this book, and I take that back. 
I would recommend it, but I, not for necessarily for too much research because he doesn't, he's, does not footnote himself well. And you've got to go on and do a lot of research to find out where he's getting his material from. Um, but still, it, it is valuable to read it. He says, uh, St. Andrew is associated not only with Greece, but also with Russia and Scotland because he ministered to Scythia, uh, in Scythia, once part of the former uh, USSR. So Scythia is up here, right? Up right in the realm of Russia there. Because he ministered there, St. Andrew was named patron saint of Russia by the Russian Orthodox Church. In AD 750, Hungus, king of Picts in what is now Scotland, was about to do battle with England when the night before the battle he dreamed that St. Andrew promised him victory. The next day, above Hungus's ca camp, there was seen in the sky a shining cross shaped like an X. The Picts advanced into battle shouting, St. Andrew, our patron, be our guide, and they won. Ever since that time, St. Andrew has been the patron saint of the Scots, and his symbol has been a, uh, his symbol has been a cross shaped like an X, okay, because he was... It was martyred in a, on, a, on an X-shaped cross. Okay? Uh, I'm sorry I missed the first two. But, oh, you, okay. Um, but please, um, Bear, uh, all of this information that we're learning, it, it, I'm, I'm sure some of them must be controversial, but are manuscripts still being discovered, or is some of this new to uh, Christianity? Uh, certainly, not, not new to Christianity, but rediscovered, yes. So certainly, there's, uh, like this archaeological stuff about, about Peter, that's all, that's all new information in the last, what, I don't know, when they started doing this. What's that? Yeah, but I don't think they started actually looking at his bones until much later than the 50s. But anyway, they made sure the excavation in the 50s, right? But anyways, so, um, so uh, certainly, much, many aspects of this are being confirmed and of course manuscripts are rediscovered but usually those manuscripts are known through other sources like Hegesippus is a third century church historian who wrote a lot about the apostles his writings are gone but they're preserved in quotations in Eusebius and other places okay and so uh, over time maybe we'll find some of his some of his writings or more ancient manuscripts of those writings um, and so those, those types of things are being discovered all the time. It's very, it's very interesting. In fact, they've discovered um, the, the, the bones. Is it a St. Philip I was reading up on? I think it was St. Philip that they discovered his bones um, or, a, or a, a, a sarcophagus with the inscription or something like that. Anyways, so these things are happening all the time. Very exciting and very wonderful. Again, the relics of the Twelve Apostles are there in the back of the room. Okay, you're more than welcome to go and reverence those, those relics. They're a great treasure to have here. I wonder, I was saying, we were setting them up today, I was saying, how many places, number one, have talks on the lives of the Twelve Apostles, and how many have them in the presence of the relics of the Twelve Apostles? So it's a unique opportunity. You can go over there and, and kiss those relics and touch your rosaries to them, touch your Bibles to them. Uh, these are the men who healed people. There are the men who healed people, and I think we need to have a talk on the value of relics in the Catholic Church one of these days. Okay, God bless you. Thank you for coming these past three weeks. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.